Hey, it's Jen. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly developing and things may have changed by the time you hear this episode. For the latest news, tune into your public radio station and follow updates at npr.org. This is the 1A Podcast. I'm Sarah McCammon, in for Jen White. Let's jump into the news roundup. This week, let's just start with a deep breath. To send this kind of FBI team to the former president's home, there has to be something more than just a Presidential Records Act violation. They have to know something that we don't know about yet. So the big search took place on Monday. How much more do we know now? Fortunately, we can ask our great panelists who are ready to help us unpack this dramatic week. Shane Harris covers national security for The Washington Post. He's also a co-host on the podcast Chatter. Shane, thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. Also with us, Mary Harris. No relation to Shane Harris that I know of. She's the host of Slate's daily news podcast, What Next? Mary, welcome to the program. Hey, Sarah. Great to be here. And yes, no relation. And we're thrilled to welcome back Eva McKen. So proof you don't have to have the last name Harris to be on the show today. She's a national politics reporter for CNN who's joining us from the campaign trail in Erie, Pennsylvania. Eva, thank you so much for being here. Good to be with you, Sarah. Shane, I'm going to start with you because your name is among the bylines on that huge story the Washington Post dropped last night about what the FBI could have been looking for during the search at Mar-a-Lago. So what can you tell us? Well, what we've reported is that classified documents relating to nuclear weapons were among the items that FBI agents sought when they searched Donald Trump's home on Monday. Uh, And that's according to people familiar with the investigation. It's important to note that we don't know if this is information about U.S. nuclear weapons or those of another country. But that category of information uh, would be among the most closely guarded secrets in the U.S. government and I think helps us to better understand why the FBI took the extraordinary step of executing a search warrant uh, on Trump's home, uh, presumably knowing that there would be the tremendous political blowback to that act that there, we've seen this week. Yeah, Shane, and, and you have closely covered national security for years. I wonder if you can just tell us a little bit more about what we know about the classification of these types of sensitive documents. You know, what are the usual protections for this kind of material? And what could it mean if they were being stored in an unsecure location? Well, information about U.S. nuclear weapons or foreign nuclear weapons program, it would be classified at the highest levels. And we have things like in the government top secret and then what's called sensitive compartmented information. And then even above that, there's sort of like you can think of a secret above top secret. They would have presumably had those kinds of restrictions, which means that a very small number of people would have had the legal authorization to even handle or read those documents. Um, So it would have been a very small circle. Now, any president has the authority to read any classified information that he wants. He can declassify anything. So merely possessing it, uh, if you're the president, is, is not the issue. The question becomes, how was this removed from a government facility? Why did it end up in a private residence, which is what Mar-a-Lago is? And why did Donald, did Donald, why didn't Donald Trump not give it back when the FBI and the Justice Department asked for it under subpoena 
earlier this year. When he leaves office, we should say, too, he no longer has the authority to declassify information. Former presidents have access to their records, but they're supposed to be kept in a secure facility, and then people with clearances can go and look at them for things like a memoir or to refresh their memory about something. Everything about taking it to Mar-a-Lago is unorthodox. (laughs) Um, and, And certainly having classified information of that sensitivity appears to have raised tremendous concerns at the top ranks of the Justice Department. Now, all week long, there were lots of questions, especially from the right, about what might have been at Mar-a-Lago that the FBI might have been searching for. Yesterday, Attorney General Merrick Garland said the Justice Department filed a motion to unseal the search warrant used in the search of the former president's home. And Garland gave a short prepared statement with few other details. I want to hear an excerpt. I personally approved the decision to seek a search warrant in this matter. Second, the department does not take such a decision lightly. Where possible, it is standard practice to seek less intrusive means as an alternative to a search and to narrowly scope any search that is undertaken. Third, let me address recent unfounded attacks on the professionalism of the FBI and Justice Department agents and prosecutors. I will not stand by silently when their integrity is unfairly attacked. Now, since then, President Trump, former President Trump, has responded to the move to unseal the warrant. Uh, Eva, what's he saying? Well, he's saying he's that he's perfectly fine with it being released, but he, you know, we don't have to wait for this process. I, I believe he has until 3 p.m. to respond today, his attorneys. He could go forward and he could release it himself. So it's it's curious to, uh, if he is fine with this information being out there, why he hasn't released it already. You mentioned you're in Pennsylvania on the campaign trail Can you give us a sense of how this news story is reverberating so far this week? Well, it's been curious to watch. It seems as though the former president's allies, it it has only emboldened them. You know, there was concern, I think, that uh, Trump could sap the momentum from Republicans going into the midterms, that they already have issues to run on, the economy, inflation, and that Trump entering the field could kind of uh, blow up that calculation. But now uh, some of the very same Republicans that were calling on the former president to hold off on announcing a 2024 bid are actually saying that this uh, episode uh, could breathe new life uh, into his movement and into the party. So that has been something fascinating to watch develop just in the last few days here. This actually seems to be accelerating his timeline to, um, to declare his candidacy. Mary, I want to ask you, when the details in the warrant come out, uh, how significant will they be? Well, I mean, I think we'll have to see, right? Ideally, there are going to be both the warrant and then the list of documents that was given to Trump's attorneys, basically saying this is what we took. And I don't think that they're going to have intense details, like we took the nuclear codes away from Mar-a-Lago, but they'll give at least some detail about why this judge approved this warrant and why this went forward in the first place. So I think we'll just have to see. But I do really think what what Ava said that was so important, which is Trump could release this right now. His attorneys were given a copy of the warrant, and they were also given this receipt from the officials who came to Mar-a-Lago. So they have all this. When he said last night, you know, I'm fine with releasing this, he could have easily attached, here is the warrant and here is the receipt. He didn't. So the question becomes, why and what we see in these documents. 
Shane, I wonder what you make of that. First of all, the president's strategy, the former president's strategy here. And, you know, what else could we find out from these documents? Well, I think the strategy is, I mean, we've seen Donald Trump say one thing and do another uh, before. So we'll, we'll see what his lawyers actually say in response to the Justice Department's willingness to, to unseal it. And, you know, and the judge can go ahead and unseal it. I mean, he doesn't necessarily need both parties to agree to it. Um, <clears throat> but I think that, you know, I agree with what Mary said. I don't think we should be expecting to see highly specific information in the warrant. And we should remember, two parts of it might be redacted. So if the warrant, for instance, spells out, and I'm not saying that it will, but some kind of specific code word or information about a very sensitive document, that might be redacted. But what we also might see is whether or not there are any specific violations of law that are articulated in that documents. So, you know, to execute a criminal search warrant, you have to have a basis to believe that you might find evidence of a crime. So what crime did the FBI think it might uncover there with this evidence? Could it be an Espionage Act violation? Is it something more straightforward like mishandling classified information? That will also give us some more insight into um, the investigation. Republican lawmakers have called the search a politicization of the Justice Department. Here's House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy speaking with reporters on Tuesday. This is unprecedented. And the thing we believe in America, I mean, when I, my office is directly across from the Supreme Court. There's this statue, uh, I think there's the Lady of Justice. She's blindfolded with a scale that's supposed to be equal. We now find that justice in America is not equal. It's determined upon whether you want to go after a political a person or not. And you go after your political foes, I think that's wrong. It's unprecedented that you would go into a former president. Why wouldn't they just ask the president if they have something there that they want? He surely would have provided it to them. Eva, you touched a moment ago on the fury on the right, and I want to talk in a moment about what happened in Cincinnati yesterday. But first, we've been hearing calls from Republican members of Congress to dismantle the FBI and DOJ in response to this. How could the Justice Department be targeted by Congress, especially if Republicans gain control of the House in November? Well, given the leadership of this Republican Party, Sarah, it is not out of the question to imagine a world in which Republicans take back the House and they consider impeaching Merrick Garland over this. Now, I think that opens up a huge uh, can of worms for them because I think that actually Garland is a very by-the-book uh, person, uh, but it, it does seem that they are sort of marching in that direction. And then also from a political perspective, I think it's been really interesting to watch traditional alliances crumble. You know, historically, conservatives have rallied around law enforcement at all levels unequivocally and have also suggested that they hold sacred concerns about national security. Well, both of these positions crumbled in the last few days as they have uh, run to defend the former president. We'll get into more of the week's biggest headlines after the break. Remember, to join future conversations, download our 1A Vox Pop app and leave us a voicemail. We're rounding up some of the week's biggest headlines. Let's get back to the conversation. Shane, I want to get back to what happened in Cincinnati this week. An armed man was killed by law enforcement yesterday after attempting to break into the FBI field office there. What do we know about Rick Schiffer and his motivations? 
Well, <clears throat> we're still learning a, quite a bit, but law enforcement officials uh, appear to be investigating his possible ties to extremist groups, including the Proud Boys, which listeners will recall their leaders are accused of helping launch the uh, attack on January 6th on the Capitol. Um, there's also, we've reported a person using Schiffer's name on Truth Social, which is President, former President Trump's social media site, posting for a, quote, call to arms message shortly before uh, the uh, the announcement became public that the FBI had searched Trump's house. So it's not entirely clear that these are connected, but this the individual's ties to extremist groups uh, are being investigated. Uh, and, you know, and the FBI has been very clear about their concern for some time now about these kinds of right-wing extremist groups and their potential for, for violence. Right. FBI Director Christopher Wray uh, touched on this this week at a field office in Omaha on Wednesday. Violence against law enforcement uh, is not the answer, no matter what anybody's upset about or or who they're upset uh, with. Uh, And I think we have in this country had over the last few years uh, an alarming rise in violence against law enforcement. Last year, uh, there were 73 law enforcement officers around this country who were killed in the line of duty, as in murdered in the line of duty. That's the highest number since 9-11. And Shane, what do we know so far about the degree to which threats against law enforcement, including the FBI, have escalated since the search at Mar-a-Lago? Well, what we've seen is, I mean, a, a real like online harassment, the judge, the magistrate who actually signed off on the warrant, which, by the way, is a fairly pro forma act. I mean, if he's presented with the right affidavits and whatnot, um, has had threats against him as well. Merrick Garland spoke out about this uh, when he gave his press conference yesterday condemning attacks on the FBI, rhetorical attacks as well. So, you know, th- I think that these threats and the level of violence are, you know, potentially going to escalate. And we should remember, too, you know, in the January 6th attack, uh, you know, supporters of President Trump attacked Capitol Police officers. They attacked law enforcement. And and to, to, to Ava's earlier uh, uh, good point, you know, these are traditionally groups that tend to embrace and try to sort of, you know, be seen politically as very closely aligned with law enforcement. And that's kind of been turned on its head here. The former president has really made the FBI out to be this kind of rogue operation that is attacking him for political reasons. And that kind of rhetoric, I think a lot of officials worry, is going to fuel further threats and potentially more violence. Yeah, I mean, I think it's hard to ignore the irony of that reality that both you and Eva have pointed out. I mean, I covered the 2016 campaign for NPR, spent a lot of time at Trump rallies hearing him talk about law and order and how he supported the police and the military. And yet here we have really this kind of reversal in the framing of law enforcement activities. What does that mean, Shane, for the country? I mean, look, I think President Trump right now is, is is showing us that he is willing to try and undermine the public faith and the integrity of an impartial law enforcement and criminal justice system. Um, the, the fear that I think a lot of people have, I share it, is that people will believe Donald Trump when he says that the FBI is simply out to get him and that you can't trust law enforcement because they are politically motivated. I mean, in the same way, I think that he has try to undermine the public's faith in free and fair elections, um, this starts to tear at the basic kinds of fabrics of a rule of law society, and that is what holds us together. And we have realized how fragile our constitutional framework actually is. So I put these kinds of rhetorical attacks by the president in that same category of, of, of risk of a threat to a democratic system, frankly. Meanwhile, former President Trump continues to have 
a strong hold on at least the Republican base. At the CPAC convention last week, he overwhelmingly won a straw poll uh, for 2024 candidates. There's been speculation that he will announce another presidential bid soon. He's been hinting at that. Mary, what role could all of this, the FBI search of this week, play in the timing? And what implications does it have for a potential Trump 2024 campaign? Well, I think that's a really interesting question because I don't think we know. I think we're in the middle of this really high stakes political game of chicken. Like, look back at what happened over the last week. The whole reason we knew on Monday that Mar-a-Lago had been searched is because Donald Trump announced it. He clearly saw some advantage in getting in front of the story, letting his followers know about it. And then you saw the Republican Party kind of fall in line. A lot of people talk about, you know, this is, we need to know more about this, like this is an aberration. And then you also... At the same time, for Democrats, over the last few months, you've seen them implement this strategy where they actually want to run against Trump and Trumpism. And so it's kind of this very (laughs) chaotic thing. Like if you look back at the 2020 election, a lot of people voted for Republicans, but they actually did not vote for Trump. And Trump is a very polarizing figure. So I think the question becomes, to whose advantage is it for Trump to be out front like this? And I don't think we know. Some Democrats clearly think they want to run against Trump. This is actually kind of good to have Trump and Trumpism out front. Some Republicans clearly think Trump is very motivating. It's good to have Trump and Trumpism out front. And I'm not sure that we know the answer of like which of these people is right. In the meantime, we've got midterm elections coming up in November, more primary elections coming up in the next couple of weeks in Alaska, Wyoming, and Florida. How will, uh, Eva, I want to ask you this, how will this FBI investigation sit in the minds of voters? I think it'll feature prominently, especially for the last, at least in the next few weeks. I think at the end of the day, it seems as though when you speak to voters, the key issue is going to continue to be the economy. But I think that no doubt, you know, this historic episode will linger in their minds as well. And it could be galvanizing for Democratic voters. I think that Republicans right now are really feeling as though this has injected some unity into the party. But it could have the reverse effect. It's no secret that Democrats have not been able to deliver on a lot of their priorities, a lot of their domestic uh, policy ambitions. And you have such a stark contrast with the former president potentially coming back on the scene. And so even though Democrats might be disappointed, and they certainly are when you speak to them, this could be a motivating factor. You know, basically this puts the former president on the ticket in the midterms if he does announce uh, within the next few months. Although uh, President Biden does appear close to getting some critical legislation through, which we'll talk about in a moment. But first, in New York this week, Trump invoked the Fifth Amendment during a four-hour deposition with New York Attorney General Letitia James. The interview is part of a three-year-long investigation by the Attorney General into the Trump Organization's business practices. Trump read a statement in which he accused James of, quote, the greatest witch hunt in the history of our country, end quote. Mary, tell us more about what James is investigating. 
So this is a civil investigation. She's essentially accusing Donald Trump of fraud. She's saying his family business misrepresented the value of its assets in order to boost its bottom line. And she's been pretty concrete about what she's talking about here. She's talking about, you know, misstating the value of properties to lenders. She's talking about, you know, saying you have these $150,000 initiation fees for your golf club that you don't collect. She's saying, you know, you are saying your Trump Tower apartment is 20,000 square feet bigger than it is. She's she's being pretty concrete. And we've been waiting for her to have this conversation with Donald Trump. Notably, she said she was there for this. And he delayed it last month because of the death of his former wife. Um, but, you know, this investigation, the fact that he is pleading the fifth, it really does raise a strong inference of liability in this case. And so it'll be interesting to see what happens now, now that now that we've kind of reached this pinnacle moment of you had Donald Trump in the room, the decision has to be like, what are we going to do? And I'm just I'm waiting to hear what happens next, because she's been so concrete about what she has. And, you know, to not move forward when you have that kind of evidence would be interesting. But to move forward would also be kind kind of earth shaking. And of course, that's not the end of the former president's financial troubles. This week, a federal appeals court also ruled that the House Ways and Means Committee can get access to Trump's tax returns via the IRS. This, of course, has been a matter of long-running dispute, something Trump has been trying to avoid since running for president in 2016. Eva, why is the House tracking these returns down now? Well, this is something that they have long pursued, and I... You know, this this has been a years long effort. I think that what's important to note is that just because the appeals court has made this ruling, that doesn't mean we're going to see these tax returns tomorrow. This is very much an ongoing legal saga. Um, And his uh, the former president's team has vowed that they will continue to, to sort of fight this tooth and nail. Also, time is running out for Democrats to pursue this. They, um, this is sort of a, um, uh, I think, a, a story about the, the balance of power. Should Congress have the right to get this material? The former president long argued they did not. But if Republicans gain control of the House, then they will likely shut down this investigation. So I, I'm not confident that we are ever really going to see uh, this information. And Shane, I also want to talk about um, one more aspect of all these investigations. Representative Scott Perry, a Republican from Pennsylvania, says his cell phone was seized by the FBI on Tuesday morning. He is a close Trump ally and was a key figure in efforts to overturn the 2020 election. What more do we know about this seizure and what might be on that cell phone, Shane? Well, federal agents got the this warrant for his phone, uh, and they've also seized um, devices and phones from other people connected to Donald Trump and then in the efforts to overturn the 2020 election, which is being investigated. <clears throat> so you can learn a number of things from someone's phone records. Uh, 
including who they've called, when they made calls. They might also be interested in text messages that are contained on the phone. It's not entirely clear how the seizure of Representative Perry's phone connects with this broader investigation. Uh, It's like the third major action, I think, in the past few months uh, in terms of these kinds of – this investigation into efforts by Trump to overturn the 2020 election. So we're going to have to see where this plays out. But important to note, I mean, again, in the realm of sort of extraordinary law enforcement actions, seizing the phone of a sitting member of Congress is a pretty big deal. Um, they're, they're just, I'm not saying this implicates separation of powers, but anytime you have the FBI investigating a member of Congress, an elected official, it's especially sensitive and it's quite notable. So uh, we will learn more, but the mere fact of them seizing uh, Representative Perry's phone was notable. I, I think it tells us what a big news week this has been, uh, that that almost feels like a footnote. But it is it is worth underscoring that it's a significant development. Ahead of the summer recess for Congress, the Democrats are eager to draw attention to a rash of legislation they hope will boost their chances at the ballot box in November. The Inflation Reduction Act appears well on its way to becoming law after being approved by the Senate last week. And Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says that's not all. We put the PACT Act together, the best advance in health care for veterans in 10 years. We did the NATO bill. All of those things in six weeks was marvelous, uh, marvelous accomplishments. And the people are going to see Democrats can get something done, even with a 50-50 margin in a caucus that runs from Bernie Sanders to Joe Manchin. Not an easy job, but we did it. Eva, this is something Democrats really want to get across, that they are getting things done. The IRA, as it's called, is one of the biggest economic policy packages passed in recent history. Can you just remind us of what's in that bill? Well, it's a massive climate, health care and tax bill. Um, They are billing it as a measure that will reduce inflation. But time will tell if that will actually be the effect. Uh, It will promote the production of goods, renewable energy. It has $430 billion in new spending to reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions, investing in clean energy technologies. It's a behemoth. The bill itself is nearly 800 pages. And, you know, we will continue to learn the, the impact of this in the weeks and months ahead. But the problem for Democrats is that a lot of this, these um, policies won't take immediate effect. And then you also have, I think, you know, Democrats, Democratic leadership, while they are celebrating the passage of this, there is, I think, some division among, like, climate groups on the ground. You have some more progressive climate groups that are in opposition to the more big green groups about what the overall climate impact of this bill will actually be. Uh, But it it is a huge investment. It is something that the president, the White House, Senate leadership, um, Speaker Pelosi has worked on for a long time. It is not the the massive build back better that they would have hoped for, but it it is a portion of some of those priorities at a time I think that many Democrats would say they badly needed a win. President Biden also signed legislation that will pump over $50 billion into the research and development of semiconductor chips. Of course, these chips power critical pieces of equipment for people's lives and the economy, medical devices, cars, computers, and more. Shane, how soon could the impact from chips be felt? 
This could take some time. This is not like throwing a switch and suddenly we have a, a massive new production of, of chips in the United States to, to compensate for shortages and things like, you know, the Americans being able to buy vehicles more quickly. So it's going to take some time to work through the system. And a lot of this bill is aimed at um, basic research and development, which is significant, but that's kind of a long-term investment. This is not something that is aimed at sort of stimulating an industry right now. It's a much longer-term investment for the future, so it's going to take some time to play out. We're rounding up some of the week's biggest news. We'll be back with more in just a moment. A reminder to have your questions answered on future topics or just to let us know what you think, tweet us at 1A. You're listening to the News Roundup. Let's get back to the conversation. The president also signed the Promise to Address Comprehensive Toxics, or PACT Act, this week. That legislation would expand access to care for veterans who've been exposed to toxic substances during their service. And at this week's signing ceremony, President Biden went out of his way to thank all of those who'd been campaigning for this law, notably the comedian Jon Stewart. What you've done, John, matters. And you know it does. You should know. It really, really matters. You refuse to let anybody forget Refuse to let them forget. And we owe you big, man. We owe you big. Now, Eva, tell us more about what is included in the PACT Act. Well, this expands the, I think, the definition of what is included. And so it now also includes hypertension. Um, and uh, basically it removes the, the burden for veterans to prove that they're toxic um, exposure resulted in uh, some of these conditions that we have heard about. And this was personal for the president because he believes that his own son, um, Bo Biden, who died of cancer years ago, that he might have been exposed. And we have heard from the veterans community that these goods and these services that they are trying to access, that they have to essentially jump through hoops to get this care. And so the the goal of this bill is to make it easier uh, for them to be able to um, access these benefits. And Shane, just kind of a basic question, but an important one for this conversation. What is a burn pit and why have they been so harmful? Yeah, well, a burn pit is basically a pit where the military burns trash. Uh, uh, When military forces were deployed, over the years after 9-11 in Afghanistan and Iraq, they needed some place to burn not only everyday trash, but things like you know, furniture, medical waste, electronic devices. Uh, you know, these were places that didn't necessarily have an infrastructure where you could take the trash to the dump. And so they, they often just burned it and it emitted really toxic substances and fumes into the air. And there's been this concern now for years among former service members that they inhaled this and it could have caused some of these terrible conditions, including cancer and respiratory illness. How big of an achievement is it, Mary, for the Biden administration to get this through at this moment? Well, I mean, I think it is certainly a big achievement, but, you know, it was, it's, it's very bipartisan, but, you know, Biden made a big point of saying this was bipartisan, but they had to fight for it. You know, this, this almost didn't happen because Republicans stepped back from it. So I think it's a victory for Biden, but also, honestly, we've all watched Jon Stewart fight for this for so long and has really been consistent on this issue and issues like it. He also um, went to Capitol Hill, notably, to really fight for 9-11 first responders. So this is clearly something that's important to him. 
Okay, I want to talk about the next round of primaries, this time for Vermont, Minnesota, and Wisconsin. And I want to start in Wisconsin, where a Trump-backed far-right candidate beat a more moderate Republican backed by the party establishment. Eva, can you tell us more about Tim Michaels? What does his victory in this Republican gubernatorial primary mean? Well, he very much ran, I think, the way that Trump ran, right? He branded himself as an outsider. I think just a few months ago, many people didn't know him. Uh, He is a millionaire construction executive. But but most importantly, he is knee-deep in election denialism. And I think that that is the concern across the country, is that we are seeing more and more of these candidates on the glide path to potentially gaining real power. And that could be a concern, especially in a swing state like Wisconsin, for uh, someone to uh, continue sort of to be trafficking in this uh, this lie that the 2020 election uh, was stolen. Michaels was endorsed by the former president, his opponent in the primary endorsed by the former vice president. And we are seeing these sort of proxy battles take place across the country. Now, Democrats think a candidate like Michaels will be easier to defeat in the general election, but I don't necessarily think that that is the case. Uh, we are seeing uh, the the rise in these of these candidates all over, and it is not necessarily a given that they they will lose. I think in other races we have seen Democrats actually invest and weigh in and tip their thumb on this scale to try to elevate these folks. And many observers have said that they have done this to their own peril because Michaels and others like him could very well win in November. I want to jump now to Minnesota and a Democratic primary. Representative Ilhan Omar survived her primary challenge, but in a surprisingly close match. Shane, what happened there? Yeah, she kind of eked out a win here. And uh, of course, Representative Omar uh, is, you know, a member of the so-called squad and really one of the more progressive uh, further left members of the Democratic caucus. She faced the challenge from a city council member named Don Samuels, who comes from uh, a North, is from North Minneapolis, where a lot of his constituents suffer from more violent crime than in other parts of the city. And in some ways, this election was a bit about Omar with this sort of idea of you know, what gets labeled as defund the police or redirecting resources away from law enforcement into different kinds of public safety and community-based programs versus, you know, the, a different strategy and more of a approach that's responding to voters' concerns about violent crime. Um, so, you know, Samuels said basically if this was a general election, he felt he would have won, they, they would have won the race. So I, I think you can read this as a bit of a test for how viable more progressive candidates candidates calls for whether it be defunding police or redirecting resources to community-based programs, how viable those are going to be in a general election. I want to ask each of you to briefly weigh in on a really high-profile contest, and that, of course, is Congresswoman Liz Cheney's primary coming up in Wyoming next week. Polls suggest a tight race there. Mary, I want to start with you. What will the outcome tell us about the state of the GOP and maybe the country? I don't know. I feel like it will tell you a lot about Wyoming. Like Wyoming has a very, very Trumpy GOP party. The head of the GOP party there was at January 6th has said he would run through barbed wire for Trump. So it's kind of not surprising to see that party 
struggle with Cheney, who's been remarkably consistent in how she feels about Trump. She just released this ad where she basically makes the same case she's been making, saying, listen, Donald Trump and Trumpism are a threat to our democracy. Vote for me. That's not what I'm about. Um, so I think it'll be really interesting to see what happens, but I think we really don't know. Like I, I was reading some reporting that was basically saying lots of people are voting early there. It, it's like a massive turnout and people are also switching parties, which is that that's part of Cheney's tactic. She's trying to get Democrats and independents in her state to switch over what you could do same, same day in Wyoming and vote for her on the Republican ticket. And so it'll be really interesting to see if what happens in Wyoming is what lots of people expect, which is Cheney is defeated because of all the things we've talked about, or whether it's more of like a Kansas abortion referendum situation where people show up, switch parties, and are very, very invigorated. And I don't think we know. But I think we can say Cheney's been very, very consistent about who she is and why she's running. Eva, I wonder what you make of that, and especially this party switching and early voting. What does that say? Well, yeah, it'll be interesting to see if there are Democrats that cross over and support her. Um, sometimes you do hear that on the ground anecdotally, that there are Democrats that, ad that say that they admire her courage and would, would support her even if she ran for president. But uh, in the immediate sense, uh, I think if she loses in this House race, I think it will sort of underscore that there is very limited ways that Republicans, if they want to be successful politically, that they can challenge the former president. There really isn't a home for them in this Republican Party. She's sort of the old guard. Uh, the traditional, I think, issues that Republicans sort of uh, run to, whether it is uh, respect for law enforcement or um, you know, lowering taxes. You know, these are sort of the, the boring traditional Republican issues. Those no longer really have currency in this party. It has really become all about proximity to Trump and uh, fidelity to Trump. And I think that if she doesn't survive, it will kind of be a message to other Republicans um, that you you really have a limited limited avenue uh, forward if you are going to really put yourself at odds with the former president. Shane, what are you watching in regards to this Wyoming race for Liz Cheney? Well, presumably if she loses her primary and she is no longer going to be the representative from uh, from her from Wyoming, I'm curious if she would mount a national presidential run uh, in 2024. I, I don't think for all the reasons that Ava laid out that there's room in the party for someone with Liz Cheney's positions to win, even though she is a deeply conservative Republican and had a very a voting record that was very aligned with former President Trump. But I do wonder if she would relish the opportunity to again be on a national stage and possibly literally a debate stage uh, as a way of calling attention and differences out to President Trump and who knows, potentially trying to play a spoiler. So I don't think this is the end of Liz Cheney if she loses her seat in Congress. Um, but the, the Republican Party doesn't really have room for her uh, as a viable candidate, I think. So she becomes almost more of a maybe kind of a national spokesperson for a different kind of conservatism and a, an anti-Trump Republicanism, which is a movement that has been trying to gain steam and currency for the past couple of years. And we have a couple of listener questions, which I think, Shane, they're probably best directed to you 
since you cover national security. One is from Guy in Pensacola, Florida, who asks, what is the process for declassifying documents? Referring back to the beginning of the hour when we talked about um, the FBI search of former President Trump's home. Surely, he says, there must be legal paperwork rather than just a verbal statement. What can you tell us about that process, Shane? It's a great question and an important one here. Um, so if if the government decides to declassify information, yes, there is normally uh, a paperwork. There is an extensive uh, kind of process of going through to ensure that the information, if it's declassified, is not going to harm national security or jeopardize the interests of, say, an intelligence agency who the information belongs to. Presidents have the unilateral authority to declassify anything. They are what's called the original classification authority. They essentially are the classifiers in chief. And a president can verbally declassify something. Now, hopefully there's a record made of that and there's some accounting for it. But what this is going to get down, why it's going to become important is if Donald Trump claims somehow that he declassified all the information that he took with him to Mar-a-Lago, um, he can do that. Uh, he doesn't necessarily have to prove how he did it because he has the authority, um, but that's where this is going to come into play. And you're seeing really how powerful the classification and declassification authority of the president actually is. And another one briefly, Shane, I think your reporting has addressed this, but a question from Ian, did the FBI jump directly to executing a search warrant or were attempts made to have the documents turned over voluntarily or by subpoena first? There were other attempts. And to the tape you played earlier from Kevin McCarthy where they said, why didn't the FBI or the Justice Department just ask for the information? They did. Um, they did it with a subpoena uh, in June, which is a way of kind of politely saying, you know, please go give us this information that you have. And, of course, the National Archives and Records Administration has been asking for the information as well. So, no, we did not go from, you know, zero to search warrant here. There were many steps in between. Finally, for millions of tennis fans, the sport is never going to be quite the same again. There we are. It's Serena Williams again. 14 years after that first victory here. Irresistible, majestic, and the judgment of history will surely be that she was in a class of her own. One of the world's greatest tennis players, Serena Williams, announced this week she will retire after this year's U.S. Open. She says she wants to evolve away from the sport. Briefly, Mary, in about 30 seconds or so, what does this mean for tennis? Oh, God. I mean, it's it's a massive loss. But what I love about Serena Williams is that on her way out the door, she's doing exactly what she always has done, which is making all of us think. She's being so honest. In her essay for Vogue writing about this, she wrote... You know, if I were a guy, I wouldn't be writing this. I'd be out there playing and winning while my wife was doing the physical labor of expanding our family. She expressed regret about retiring. Women are not often allowed to be, you know, expressive of both how hemmed in we can be by our bodies and how much pleasure we take in them. And in that essay, she really did that. So I am so confident that Serena's voice will just keep inspiring people, but huge loss for tennis. Big loss for tennis. Amazing career. Mary Harris is host of Slate's daily news podcast, What Next? Eva McKen is with CNN, and Shane Harris covers national security for The Washington Post. Thank you all so much for joining us today. 1A's audio engineer and sound designer is Mike Kidd. Aileen Humphreys is the producer and editor of 1A On Demand. And we will wrap up with this note about a Motown legend, Lamont Dozier, who wrote hit songs for The Supremes, The Four Tops, and The Isley Brothers, as well as Marvin Gaye. 
He died this week at age 81. As part of the Holland Dozier Holland songwriting team, his hits included Reach Out, I'll Be There, Baby Love, How Sweet It Is, and Nowhere to Run by Martha and the Vandellas. Rest in heavenly peace, Dad, his son wrote online, alongside a picture of the two of them together. You're listening to the News Roundup. We'll discuss the week's biggest headlines from around the world in just a moment. This is 1A. This is the 1A Podcast. I'm Sarah McCammon, in for Jen White. It's the global edition of the News Roundup. And perhaps one of the most striking images this week came from deep inside Russia-occupied Crimea. Russia said the explosions were just an accident on the base, and the Ukrainians are yet to officially acknowledge their involvement. But a senior official here has told us that it was Ukrainian special forces who carried out the attack. The plumes of smoke were seen for miles. We'll talk more about what it could mean for those in charge in Moscow. Also in the headlines, an Iranian plot to kill U.S. officials and the ongoing fallout after Speaker Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. Joining us this week, Nancy Youssef, national security correspondent for The Wall Street Journal. Nancy, great to have you back. Great to be back. Thank you. Also the editor-in-chief at Foreign Policy and host of the Global Reboot podcast, Ravi Agrawal. Ravi, thank you for your time today. Great to be back. And from the national senior correspondent, Joyce Karam. Joyce, good to have you. Good to be with you, Sarah. Nancy, I want to start with you and with this attack on a Russian airbase in Crimea on Tuesday. What do we know so far? Well, it was one of the most complex attacks we've ever seen um, launched in this war. Um, we saw uh, multiple strikes hitting apartment buildings, hitting at least nine Russian aircraft. We saw plumes of smoke rising as Russian tourists were on the nearby beaches. And yet we don't know precisely who was responsible or how the attack was carried out. Ukraine, as you mentioned in your opening, hasn't claimed responsibility for the attack, but it certainly appears that way. The Russian explanation that this was um, caused by ammunition just doesn't line up with the satellite images that we're seeing, which show really precise attacks. And I think there's a lot of attention being paid to it because it it was beyond, frankly, the scope, I think, what of what many thought the Ukrainians could do militarily. And it suggests that you that Kiev has um, a new long-range strike capability. And if so, that potentially changes the course of the war. Um, and so this was a window into the sophistication of a, of a Ukrainian military campaign, even as we don't know the details of how that campaign was actually launched. And Joyce, in terms of strategy, how does this attack fit into the expectations that Ukraine has been preparing for a summer counteroffensive? Uh, precisely, Sarah. Uh, this first shows higher level of confidence from uh, Ukraine. Uh, it's a message uh, to Russia that this is an open war uh, within Ukraine. And we uh, have been seeing in the last uh, maybe three to four weeks more attacks uh, a, a structured military offensive from Ukraine in the uh, in the south that inc- that included drone attacks in Crimea and uh, definitely a uh, an aggressive uh, offensive in uh, Kherson that the Ukrainians are trying to uh, to claim back. So uh, so there is a shift in in uh, how the Ukrainians are focusing the war. Uh, they uh, the way they see it is the next two months, um, you know, August and September uh, before winter uh, is here are very critical uh, for the trajectory of the 
this war and uh, where they stand vis-a-vis, you know, uh, fighting and defending uh, their country. Uh, Today, just today, I was just uh, looking, um, you know, for images from uh, Crimea, and we are seeing that the Russians are sending uh, new deployments and tanks and armored vehicles to Crimea. So this might just be... Uh, the beginning of um, hot uh, uh, hot spot to come in uh, in the war in Crimea and in the uh, in southern Ukraine uh, in the next few weeks. Now, earlier this week, the Pentagon briefed reporters on the situation in Ukraine. Here's Colin Call, Under Secretary of Defense for Policy. They have made some incremental gains uh, in the East, although not very much in the last couple of weeks. But that has come at extraordinary cost uh, to uh, the Russian military because of how well the Ukrainian military has performed and all the assistance uh, that the Ukrainian military has gotten. And I think now conditions in the East have essentially uh, stabilized uh, and the focus is really shifting to the South. Uh, but the Ukra- Ukrainians have a lot of advantages, not the least of which their will to fight. One of those advantages, of course, is resources from the U.S. and other allies. Ravi, the U.S. announced another billion dollars in military aid to Ukraine. How long do you think the U.S. is willing to continue to underwrite this war? And could that change after the November elections? Uh, That's a great question. I mean, it seems like there's uh, pretty much solid bipartisan support uh, in the United States for supporting the Ukraine war. But, you know, the midterm elections could change that. And I think some of that hinges on whether, um, you know, candidates aligned with the former president, uh, Donald Trump, um, uh, you know, make somewhat of a comeback that could maybe swing some sentiment. Of course, Trump was less supportive um, of maybe arming Ukraine uh, than, uh, you know, the Biden administration has been. So that is something to look out for. But, you know, at this point, you know, much of that is just speculation. I think what the, the, the current administration would point to is the fact that their support has been very stable over the last few months. And I think this week, the fact that, um, you know, Washington was able to send in another billion dollars um, to Ukraine. This is, you know, the biggest yet uh, direct delivery of weapons to Ukraine. It includes, you know, um, essentially off-the-shelf stuff um, from the Defense Department. Um, you know, um, obviously, we've all heard about the uh, the HIMARS, the, the rocket launchers that are in use over there. But this latest sort of package of Aid also includes, uh, you know, 75,000 rounds of artillery ammunition, mortar systems, uh, shoulder-mounted javelin rockets, uh, you know, the likes of which I think now brings to a total of the U.S. security assistance so far that's been committed uh, to more than $9 billion. And in addition to that, you also have the fact that USAID um, has said that it would provide another $4.5 billion to the Ukrainian government to cover part of its budget deficit. So, you know, you combine the, the economic aid with the military aid, and that really does sort of, uh, for now at least, symbolize uh, united American support um, to continue to give Ukraine the best chance to fight off Russia. The other big news from the region this week deals with mounting concerns about the future safety of the Zaporizhia nuclear plant in Ukraine. Both sides have blamed each other for shelling close to the facility. Here's part of a video from Ukraine President Volodymyr Zelensky. 
We are actively informing the world about Russian nuclear blackmail, about the shelling and mining of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. There are already appropriate reactions from the international community, but we need to speed up actions in response. Russia will not respect words or worries. New sanctions are needed against the terrorist state and the entire Russian nuclear industry for creating the threat of a nuclear disaster. Those concerns are shared by Rafael Grossi, the director general of the International Atomic Energy Agency, and he's been speaking about safety conditions at the plant, which was seized by Russian troops in March. Saporizia is completely out of control. There are some contacts, they are faulty, they are patchy. What we need is the cooperation of the Russian occupiers, and we need the cooperation of Ukraine, because what's at stake is the nuclear safety and security of the biggest nuclear power plant in the European continent. The U.S. has called for a demilitarized zone around the nuclear plant. Nancy, what more do we know about that and what Russia might intend to do with the facility? Well, that facility has been under Russian control since March, but Ukrainian operators run the facility, which generates half of Ukrainians' nuclear-derived power. The challenge is that Russia is trying to formally annex Zaporizhia at this time, and so there's a fear that they are using the base and the expectation that Ukraine would not fire on that base because of all the ramifications that you spelled out um, to to treat that base as sort of a a protected area for their troops to launch attacks in this effort to take control and retain control of their surrounding area. It's hard to know how much um, the risk of sort of a a disaster is because it's very hard to get inspectors there. They have to um, pass through Russian checkpoints. This is not under Ukrainian control anymore. And so what you're hearing from the international community, from the IAEA, as you mentioned earlier, and more recently from the United Nations, is that the lack of visibility on the facility and these strikes coming near it raises risks of miscalculation and what some see as nuclear terrorism. It now, As a caveat to all that, these facilities are built to deal with um, external threats, but we don't know the scope of them. We don't know precisely who's launching them. Both sides are blaming each other. And therefore, we don't have a good visibility on the, the exact nature of the risk around that facility. And, and, and because there's fighting for control around that area, it's hard to see a scenario where Russia um, hands it over or says that they will remove their troops there. Again, because someone argue they have a strategic advantage in being able to plant troops and weapons from that site. Joyce, I want to go back quickly to Ukraine and, and, and put this question to you. On Saturday, Ukrainian President Zelensky urged civilians to evacuate the Donetsk region. What can you tell us about why? Yes, we are in day uh, nine uh, of this uh, evacuation, uh, the mandatory evacuation. It's mostly a humanitarian uh, uh, issue, uh, Sarah. The Ukrainians were able to evacuate so far uh, 3,000 citizens, mostly uh, elderly and children from the area. Uh, the, the Ukrainian concern here is the Donetsk uh, region's um, infrastructure uh, has been uh, destroyed, uh, you know, especially the gas supplies, the, the heating infrastructure, and they see it as uh, necessary for their citizens to leave the area before uh, winter. It also comes, as we've mentioned earlier, 
there is increased Ukrainian focus on uh, the south and not uh, uh, not the east. At the same time, uh, the, the evacuation, the stories you're hearing uh, from uh, the Donetsk region are pretty traumatic. Uh, you know, families sometimes are forced to being uh, separated with the elderly, uh, taken to nursing homes, and the children uh, taken uh, elsewhere. So uh, this is just uh, another agonizing uh, chapter in the war for Ukrainians, uh, for uh, you know seniors who've seen uh, so much in uh, in Europe, and having to face uh, this uh, chapter of uh, refuge and and displacement again. And on now to Taiwan and China. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi continues to defend her trip to Taiwan 10 days after the visit. She criticized Chinese President Xi Jinping on MSNBC this week. It's expected that she will be elected to a third term as the Chinese Communist Party's National Congress later this year. Well, I think that he's in a fragile place. He's a his, uh, his problems with his economy. He, he's acting like a, a scared bully. And this is before the, uh, the meeting that where he will want to be reelected. But I, I, we didn't go there to talk about China. We went there to talk about Taiwan. Now, Nancy, you wrote about aggressive Chinese military exercises around Taiwan after Pelosi's visit. The Chinese military says those drills are now over. But what were they about? And how did the U.S. military respond? They are over, but uh, the Chinese have promised to do more of them. But they were quite illuminating. So almost hours after Speaker Pelosi left Taiwan, the Chinese began these exercises for four days across the six zones that effectively encircle Taiwan. They used dozens of ships and planes, and it was a window into where their military is, particularly in things like um, how their Air Force and Navy communicate with each other. So it was... um, provocative um, by, by according to U.S. officials, but it was also informative about where the military um, now stands. And what we saw was a Chinese military that had the capability to surround Taiwan to create a sort of quarantine such that they could essentially block ships from coming in. They would say, we're inspect the, the the scenario where you could see this exercise sort of um, testing was saying we're going to make sure that um, there are no weapons on these ships and then hold them and then let them through at some time. It's not a blockade because a blockade is an act of war, but it does have an effect potentially on the Taiwanese economy, and we got a window on how that would look. The U.S. military moved the, the U.S. S. Ronald Reagan closer to the region. It extended um, that ship's stay there for a week. And we imagine that one of the reasons the ship was there was not only to make sure that things didn't escalate and to be a responsive force if necessary, but to also gather intelligence on how the Chinese military looks. And so this is a large-scale exercise. Um, it, it, it did slow down ships going in. It was a window into the Chinese capability, which is they have enough skill, um, coordination, equipment, training to surround and potentially quarantine um, Taiwan and, and slow its economy, but not enough to conduct a full blockade. A listener, Brian, emails us, quote, seems like she left Pelosi little choice, perhaps forcing her to make the visit so that she, by extension and by extension, the U.S., don't look like they follow his rules, meaning China's rules. 
did his own ego cause the damage to his ego? I'm not sure I understand that last question. But, but Ravi, I want to put this to you. I mean, in, in what sense might China have forced Pelosi's hand? Of course, there was all this back and forth about whether she would go, whether she wouldn't go, and she ultimately went. Well, in sort of publicly saying that that she shouldn't go and, you know, there were lots of sort of back-channeled kind of comments that were then made public afterwards in making it seem like they um, wanted to prevent uh, her from going. It made it much harder for her to then not go because it would have seemed then that she was kowtowing to the Chinese or that she maybe had been asked by uh, President Biden to not go. So the fact that all of this was playing out in the open, in fact, did no favors to either side. You know, the backdrop to some of this, um, and we heard this in, in the soundbite you played from Speaker Pelosi earlier, but this is a really important important year for China and for Xi Jinping. And for many months now, um, they have been telling the world that this year is important for us. We need stability. We don't want to rock the boat. Xi Jinping, of course, will begin a third term, which will, you know, is unprecedented in, in, in recent history. Um, it's very important to them that, you know, symbolically, nothing rocks the boat, that they're not seen to be um, taking orders from the West, that they're not seen to be weak in any way. And so in many ways, this visit has rocked that boat and is something that they really wanted to prevent. Um, as Nancy points out, however, it's very revealing in that, you know, this this was a first sight basically uh, in about three decades of, of how much China's military strength has increased uh, and grown since the last time there was, uh, you know, a similar crisis, uh, you know, when Taiwan's president at the time visited the United States uh, in 1995-96. Um, so all of that is revealing, uh, very important to see. Um, but again, I mean, I think the fact that this has played out in the in the open as much as it has uh, is something that I think would worry everyone. We know that China sanctioned Pelosi after her visit. Joyce, what impact did that have and what other fallout are we seeing between Chinese and U.S. officials? Uh, well, I, I'm not sure that uh, Sec that Speaker Pelosi is planning any uh, vacations, uh, you know, soon in Shanghai or or Beijing. So that the impact uh, of sanctions should remain uh, limited. And what we're seeing is she is taking a uh, victory lap after uh, her visit. Now, when you talk to the administration, uh, the White House, they are eager to uh, bring back. Uh, the conversation to the pre-Pelosi uh, trip. Uh, China has suspended uh, climate change and military talks with the U.S., and uh, you're seeing U.S. officials uh, are just, uh, you know, trying to, to shift the conversation back to cooperation and uh, working with China. Uh, but to the point that uh, Nancy, uh, Nancy Youssef, not Pelosi, made uh, that... Uh, you know, the exercises that we've seen from China uh, in the four days, they do provide an intelligence uh, opportunity uh, for uh, for the U.S. in collecting data on Chinese weaponry, ballistic missiles, uh, control and communication system, and everything that we've seen uh, play out in, uh, in the next week. At the same time, one can argue that the response has been 
limited militarily and economically because also China doesn't want to risk all its ties uh, with Taiwan, uh, whether by hyping uh, Taiwanese nationalism or uh, endangering, endangering its own trade and uh, economic interests with Taiwan. Joyce, you talk about wanting to sort of roll back the conversation, go back to the sort of the pre-Pelosi trip days. You know, President Biden and Chinese President Xi do have a long history. They met when they were both vice presidents. Nancy, how do you think that they'll move forward from here? Well, as you'll recall, just a few weeks ago, they had a two and a half hour conversation and that they talked about a range of issues, but there's no indication that there is progress. And I think as much as we want to move past the Pelosi visit, one of the consequences of it was for the Chinese to say that they will no longer engage with the U.S. on some topics, including climate change, because of the visit. And so while the president um, has known President Xi for a long time and has been able to engage with him, what we're hearing from the Chinese and frankly from the U.S. is that the uneasy peace that has been the status quo in the region so far um, is, is changing in dangerous ways. What they disagree about is who's responsible, and how it's changing. That's all to say that while there have been talks in the past, there's been a relationship in the past, I think what we're hearing from China is that they see things changing in a way that that they perceive as dangerous. And so I'm not sure that those relations in and of themselves are enough to um, address those concerns. And 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 while we, we think of the Pelosi visit as... It's, it's tempting to think of it as an isolation. I do think it marked a turning point in, in, in the relationship. And so it is a good thing that the president has um, a longstanding relationship and understands President Xi and that that dialogue is allowed to continue. But I do think we've, we've reached a new phase in, in that relationship between the two nations. On to Kenya, which held a presidential election on Tuesday. So far, there is no clear winner. The Electoral Commission has one week to declare results. The race is between opposition leader Raila Odinga and Deputy President William Ruto. Nancy, Amnesty International Kenya has warned that both candidates are spreading misinformation about the election and the results. Could you tell us more about the history of elections in Kenya? Um, As we know, results are being tallied for control of parliament as well. That's right. Well, so the, the, the history is not a, a pretty one. Um, in, in the last um, three elections, there has been um, violence. And I should note, and most notably in 2007, when Odinga's loss, remember he's run five times, um, his loss then triggered violence that killed at least 1,000 people and displaced 600,000 more. What's basically happened is that um, Kenya, which frankly in the region is a beacon of democracy relative to its neighbors. You think about Ethiopia, Somalia, South Sudan, Uganda, Tanzania. Um, But the election doesn't end at the ballot box. Historically, both sides have sort of um, said that that there was fraud and corruption and problems until they appear to have won. And often these cases are settled in court. The problem is that in between it has led to um, wide-scale 
violence. And so the, what you're hearing in Kenya more than anything is anxiety in this waiting period because it has been historically a period of great instability. Um, I, I would note that to, to me, what stood out in this election is the other thing that we saw was, I think, apathy more so from the youth than we have in past elections of Kenya's 22 million eligible voters, only 60% voted. That's compared to 80% um, in the last election. And that um, we, we see a society that saw that even though there are four presidential candidates, I think they saw in all of them, particularly the two frontrunners, more of the same. That while some candidates tried to present themselves as independent and representing youth and um, opposition leaders, they really saw this as an election between the status quo at a time when they're really frustrated with the status quo, when they're seeing food insecurity brought on by COVID and the war in Ukraine and a, and a drought that has ravaged the region. And so we, we're in a period of both anxiety and apathy, I would say, in Kenya right now. Just to put that in context, you mentioned just a moment ago, Nancy, that about 60% uh, of voters turned out versus 80% five years ago. Just, again, by way of by way of background, for anyone wondering, the U.S. turnout for the 2020 presidential election was 66.8%. So, um, but that is a big drop from five years ago in Kenya. Joyce, I wonder what that means for, uh, you know, for these election results and maybe more broadly for democratic efforts in Kenya. I mean, the fact that we haven't had the results come in uh, uh, from Kenya yet is, is in itself uh, concerning. But the drop is mostly because the young voters uh, didn't show up. As Nancy mentioned, uh, this is a two-horse race between uh, Ruto, who's deputy president. Uh, he describes himself as hustler-in-chief. And then you have uh, uh, Odinga, who is endorsed by the... Uh, current uh, President uh, Kenyatta. Uh, so uh, I, I, don't, uh, uh, f- I don't see that the young have seen themselves represented in, in uh, these elections, and we have seen a sort of uh, apathy uh, towards it. But at the same time, uh, there is some uh, silver lining here, the fact that we haven't seen any ethnic violence uh, uh, surrounding this election uh, so far uh, is is good news uh, uh, for uh, for Kenya. Is it because these two main uh, candidates come from uh, you know ethnicities that are not fighting each other? Well, th- that perhaps is it. But but the nature, the peaceful nature of the election uh, uh, so far, as we wait for the result, is uh, good news for. Uh, for Kenya. And Joyce, Nancy touched on this, but I wonder if you could just tell us briefly a little bit about the important issues before Kenyans right now. What What is on voters' minds? And definitely the, the, uh, the economy, uh, uh, jobs, uh, food insecurity. You have an uh, increasing number uh, of conflicts uh, surrounding uh, Kenya, uh, rise in terrorism in, um, uh, you know, in, in Somalia. You have the conflict in Ethiopia that Kenya is actually trying uh, to mediate. So it's just this uh, the state of economic uh, security that's the main issue, but also political uh, instability. Mm-hmm. Uh, around uh, around Kenya as well. Tributes poured in around the world this week for Olivia Newton-John. She began her career as the sweetheart of country-flavored pop, but that all changed when she donned black spandex for Greece, and the rest is history. Co-star John Travolta was one of many to express his condolences. 
Newton-John was first diagnosed with breast cancer in the early 1990s, and after that, she devoted more time to humanitarian causes. And she raised huge sums of money for cancer research. That legacy, as well as her musical one, lives on in Melbourne, Australia, which is now home to the Olivia Newton-John Cancer Wellness and Research Center. She was 73. On Wednesday, the Justice Department charged an Iranian man with plotting to assassinate former National Security Advisor John Bolton. Bolton served under President Donald Trump. Nancy, the details of this story almost read like a spy novel, although it is real. What can you tell us? It does. And it's funny when you're reading these legal documents because it's written in such a dry way. It's a, it's a suspense novel in the driest possible language you could imagine. So starting in October 2021, someone reaches out, an Iranian, and asks an American, he's looking for photographs of um, John Bolton to take for a book. And this person introduces him to somebody else who ends up being an informant. And over the course of months, um, they start negotiating um, this plot to assassinate Bolton. The the offer um, went up from two. They negotiated from two hundred fifty to three hundred thousand. The the this Iranian national allegedly in these documents says if you do well at this job, there's another job for you for one million. Um, he bragged about his um, connections to the Iranian um, um, Revolutionary Guard Corps, um, the IRGC, uh, their Quds forces, and. He kept pressing this guy. You need to. You need to kill him. We we here's um we've 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 scanned his house and um it doesn't look like there's security. Here's some of his schedule, which wasn't publicly available, um and um and this goes on and on until of course um um it's revealed that this was an informant. Um, this appears to be in retaliation for the 2020 assassination of Qasem Soleimani who was a hero in Iran and an incredibly influential figure without, throughout the region. And it's um, a window into what many had feared, which was some sort of um, retaliation for that, um, that assassination, um, which was led by the U.S. through a drone strike as Qasem Soleimani was leaving Baghdad International Airport. The $1 million offer appears to have been for Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, but the fact that they were um, so brazen, this wasn't someone hiding his identity. At one point, he sent a, a picture of a map that showed uh, the number of kilometers from Iran to uh, to to Bolton's house, which suggests that obviously it came from Iran, um, I think was very revealing. And, and it says that there are continue to be real security threats um, emanating from that assassination plot of Qasem Soleimani and that um, at least some elements of, of Iran um, um, are still seeking retaliation for it. Ravi, we, we just heard uh, Nancy just mentioned that second assassination plot apparently targeting former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. What more do we know about that? Well, so that would have uh, been something that they would have tried to activate um, if the first one had, had gone through. Um, really, the connecting line here between these two people, uh, John Bolton and Mike Pompeo, of course, not just the fact that they um, uh, were high-ranking uh, high, high officials in the Trump administration, but also um, these are, you know, two policymakers who have long advocated for regime change uh, in Iran. Uh, not only that, they, 
you know, were um, publicly obviously advocating um, for the Trump administration to pull out of the Iran nuclear deal, which it did do, uh, and which still isn't in place again. Um, so, you know, what a lot of this makes clear is, you know, a surprising amount of planning and brazenness uh, that the IRGC was willing to sort of go through to try and assassinate uh, you know, two high-ranking American officials on American soil. Uh, this isn't, it wouldn't be the first time uh, that something like this has been uh, sort of penned to uh, uh, the IRGC or to Iran. Uh, of course, Iran denies that it has done any of these things, even though it seems like if you read through the uh, the charge sheet from the Justice Department, uh, there is a paper trail here. Um, and it seems quite clear that, you know, this is what they were doing. A lot of that adds up as well. Um, but a very interesting uh, whole set of developments here. Now, in a statement, John Bolton wrote, quote, while much cannot be said publicly right now, one point is indisputable. Iran's rulers are liars, terrorists, and enemies of the United States. Their radical anti-American objectives are unchanged. Their commitments are worthless, and their global threat is growing, end quote. He also spoke to MSNBC's Andrea Mitchell. So the day I resigned, President Trump cut off my Secret Service. In fact, within hours after I submitted my letter, they were pulling the bells and whistles off my house. And Is that normal? No, it's not normal. Well, it's normal for Donald Trump, but not normal for, for the institution. So you didn't have security all that time, all these many, those many months. Right. When but, you knew that there were threats, you had FBI telling you there were credible threats. Well, they were telling me in general terms that the duty to warn process is, uh, is, is sometimes general. And... Uh, I didn't consider doing anything because I didn't hear them telling me anything that wasn't sort of goes with the territory material uh, up until the end when I did suggest maybe they ought to call the Secret Service, which they did. And the, the question was put to President Biden and he authorized it, for which I'm grateful. So, Ravi, especially in light of recent developments, what do you make of Bolton's comments? Well, I mean, he hasn't been shy about the fact that he had a falling out with President Trump despite serving under him um, for quite a while and, and despite, you know, publicly defending him while he was working for him. But, you know, of course, since he has been very open about the fact that they fell out and, um, you know, has, has criticized President Trump in a variety of ways. Um, you know, he's also been clear about the fact that, you know, this completely makes sense from, from his reading of what Iran would try to do. Um, so it's no surprise then that uh, Bolton would come out and, you know, he's been doing the rounds in the media. You heard that clip on MSNBC, of course. He was also on CNN and on other channels, uh, you know. And Bolton has, as, as I was saying, advocated for a long time for regime change in, in Iran. He is deeply unpopular in Tehran. Uh, so in that sense, uh, a lot of this just adds up. Next, a quick word about a story you might have heard in news from Lebanon. Thursday, an armed man held a bank hostage for more than six hours in Beirut because he could not withdraw his savings. And the hostage taker is being sen seen by many people as a hero. Joyce, fill us in. What happened? Uh, well, this is a guy who had uh, his father undergoing an operation in the hospital and the uh, healthcare doesn't cover it, so he needed to withdraw $50,000 from his uh, savings in a bank in central Beirut. He went in the morning to the bank and they told him that's not 
possible because his money is in uh, dollars. And since the financial meltdown in 2019, the banks in Lebanon are prohibiting access to uh, savings that are in dollars. So uh, he got very frustrated. He came back with can uh, a can of uh, gasoline uh, fuel and uh, uh, and a gun. And he threatened to burn the bank down and then burn himself if they don't give him the money. What ended up happening, Sarah, which is very interesting, is the popular support that the uh, uh, Bassam Hussein uh, got where crowds came and gathered outside the bank supporting him because these are also people who are as frustrated and don't have access to their money. Long story short, um, he ends up uh, negotiating with the bank and he gets $30,000 out. Uh, it's only a fraction of more than $200,000 that he has um, in the bank, but it's some money to cover uh, part of his father's operation. He is still this morning, he was still under interrogation. His brother took the money uh, to the to the hospital. But this is all just, uh, you know, just another indication of the meltdown that we are seeing in Lebanon, a meltdown of historic uh, proportion, whether it's, uh, you know, on the political, financial, or social uh, orders in the country. So uh, now, you know, according to UN figures, you have almost 80% uh, of Lebanese population that's in poverty. Uh, there is no cash liquidity. The healthcare system is crumbling. Uh, and you have an absolutely tone-deaf uh, political and financial governing elite. And uh, what we saw, you know, from the event yesterday is people are just nearing uh, the state of, uh, of explosion to, to just get basic means uh, to live. They have to resort to uh, force and threats to get their own money, their own savings out of the bank. And on Thursday, new and alarming research says the Arctic is heating up nearly four times faster than the Earth as a whole. Scientists had previously estimated that the Arctic was heating up about twice as fast as the globe overall. But this new study, published in the journal Communications, Earth and Environment, finds that is a big underestimate. Also this week, record downpours flooded homes, roads, and subway stations in South Korea's capital of Seoul. The torrential rain claimed at least 13 lives. Forecasters worry another foot of rain could fall before the week is out. Finally, to London, where every child between the ages of 1 to 9 is being offered a booster dose of the polio vaccine. This move from the British health authorities came after traces of the virus turned up in sewage samples across one quarter of the city's boroughs. To date, no individual cases of the disease have been reported. Before we wrap up for today, I want to ask each of our panelists what other stories they'll be watching this week. And Ravi, I'll start with you. Well, um, you know, Sunday and Monday uh, marks about a year since uh, Kabul fell to the Taliban. Um, so I'll be watching that anniversary quite closely um, to see if there are any new developments there. Also, it's a moment to just mark um, Afghanistan's trajectory over the last year under Taliban rule. Obviously, they have uh, a humanitarian crisis, a financial crisis. Uh, the Taliban's rule has been especially brutal um, for women uh, and minorities. 
Um, there'll be a lot of increased coverage, I think, in the West around that, looking at what's going on there, but also sort of America's legacy in Afghanistan. So that's one thing I'll keep an eye out for uh, August 14, 15. Those two days are also important. They happen to be the anniversaries uh, of, of India and Pakistan, their 75th anniversary. So also keeping an eye on that. Joyce, how about you? What are you watching this week? Uh, well, I mean, with the breaking news now on author Salman Rushdie, this uh, this ought to be a big story. And, uh, you know, st- t- they have arrested a suspect, so to know who and why. Uh, and then for the, I mean, for the weekend, it's a wonderful weather in Washington, uh, D.C., so I will just be watching uh, that. But for next week, definitely Afghanistan's uh, anniversary. Uh, and then the issue of the Iran uh, talks, it's the deadline for Iran to uh, respond to the uh, European uh, proposal. Uh, will they do uh, that, or will we see a complete, uh, uh, you know, stalling and uh, just uh, another uh, problem for the uh, nuclear uh, deal? And Nancy, your final thoughts as you look ahead. Well, as you know, a lot of the U.S. attention has been on the raid at Mar-a-Lago, Donald Trump's Florida home, and some of the classified materials in it. I'm curious about what those documents are, what are the national security implications, and how the world watches and takes the U.S. response to it, in addition to all the things my colleagues said. All right. Well, before we wrap up, I want to share one of my top stories this week, maybe slightly less serious, but it was an apology that came from the French scientist Etienne Klein. Klein has said he was sorry for tweeting out an image of chorizo and joking that it was a star, as seen through the James Webb telescope. Not all of his 98,000 followers were amused. Klein is the director of the Alternative Energies and Atomic Energy Commission, where he is, or at least was, regarded as a credible source for scientific information. Still, it's kind of hard to blame anyone for wanting to showcase the glories of chorizo. Our thanks this week to Nancy Youssef. Nancy is a national security correspondent for The Wall Street Journal, also the editor-in-chief at Foreign Policy and host of the podcast Global Reboot, Ravi Agrawal, and from the national senior correspondent Joyce Karam. 1A's managing producer is Paige Osborne. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer. And Barb Anguiano produces our podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Sarah McCammon, sitting in for Jen White. This is 1A.